today on EdgeFX. There's this notion that you're doing like this sort of documentary work by just kind of placing a microphone, uh, often an expensive array of microphones, in a sort of exotic or otherwise sonically interesting locale and then sharing them with people on social networks. Is that inherently environmentalist? I have doubts about that. We are delighted to have a chance to bring to your attention the musician and podcaster Kyle Johnson. What you are about to hear is episode three of his podcast, Art Music Perspectives. In it, he explores the history of composers making use of sounds from nature in their work. He chats with Craig Ely, an environmental historian and sound studies scholar who helps Johnson understand the gendered, racialized, and imperial dimensions of the marketplace for environmental sounds. We hope you enjoy this preview of Johnson's program and then seek out the rest of Art Music Perspectives, which is available now from Apple Podcasts. Western music history, there are numerous instances of composers who used representations of environmental sounds in their works. The piece we're hearing now is Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. At the close of the second movement, Beethoven features three birds, the nightingale, which he writes for flute, the quail, which he writes for oboe, and the cuckoo, which is translated to the clarinet. These three birds have a brief dialogue before the close of the movement.
a work many people remember from their childhood music classes, Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, also used animal sounds mimicked through Western instruments, which Prokofiev used to stylize each of the characters in the piece. The bird, whose name is Sasha, by a flute, which plays very, very high. Sonia the duck, by an oboe, like this. It wasn't until the 20th century that composers were able to use recordings of natural sounds in their works. One of the first examples of this was Respighi's 1924 work entitled The Pines of Rome. As a transition to the last movement, his score indicates that a recording should be played of a choir of birds. It's an unexpected effect and acts to transport the listener to one of the vast forests that must have inspired Respighi. Flash to 1971, when the composer George Crumb used sonar recordings of humpback whale song, sounds he wouldn't otherwise hear, to inspire his work Vox Balanay, or Voice of the Whale. To recreate the sounds of those humpback whale songs, Crumb's score instructs a flutist to hum into the instrument while blowing specific pitches. Later in the piece, an evocative seagull effect is heard from a cellist. The use of nature recordings was, and still is, quite widespread in music, not least for Olivier Messiaen. Scholars have analyzed each bird song that he used in his music and an attempt to explain where the actual bird song came from, whether through recorded form or in the wild. Based on his own travel logs, we know that Messiaen traveled throughout France and heard each specific bird in person within the catalog of birds. But in other works, such as his exotic birds for piano and wind ensemble, he relied upon recordings of bird songs, a fact he seldom disclosed publicly. Thank you. 
This came at a time when the mid-century recording industry became interested in recording the sounds of nature. To discuss this trend, I interviewed Craig Ely in early 2017. In addition to teaching classes on music and nature, Ely is currently Associate Director of Humanities Networks at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and has done extensive research on the relationship between recorded sound and the environment. Messiaen is a big name within the fields of sound studies and environmental music, which is why Ely is the perfect person to give us more context. We begin with a discussion about the similarities between Beethoven's and Messiaen's use of birdsong. You mentioned the Pastoral Symphony, and you know Beethoven obviously does things a lot different than yeah. than Messiaen would yeah. in represent, representing nature. Uh-huh. I'm wondering if you can maybe talk to that idea a little bit more. I mean, obviously we're dealing with kind of a classical romantic um, era uh-huh. view uh-huh. of nature in music um, versus a contemporary view of nature in music. Right. So there's a difference in you know, just compositional language. For sure. There's also this like broader experience of listening that is different too in terms of how people would have experienced both of those pieces and what their expectations were. Um, I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating that you pointed out to me about the Messian piece is this unbelievably detailed note-taking in the score, right? Um, labeling. Yeah, the labeling, right? Um, and, and actually, weirdly, the Pastoral Symphony does that in parts too, right? It actually identifies species or, or environmental things like stream or something that he was going for. Mm-hmm. Something about that too also indicates at a really basic level the relationship between the score and the piece. There's this project at work in addition to the music, supplementary to the music or complementary to the music. I'm of the mind that it's key to understanding the piece. Um, these really descriptive, poetic presentations of where we are in the land, um, in addition to the detailed marking up of the score, uh, says to me that this piece had a sort of multi-sensory, multimodal uh, way of being in the world that it desired, where you were not only a listener, but you were also a reader. You were also a body in a physical space to absorb the sounds in a particular way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that certainly corroborates what Messian said to people when they would ask, you know, how do I interpret your music or how should I understand it? And he would say, well, you know, get out of the practice room and just go out into nature and eventually you'll you'll have an idea. On the other hand, there are stories that Messian would be a little upset with ornithologists that, you know, he would play something on the piano and they couldn't recognize the bird that he was playing. Ornithologists also... Um, not to criticize, but have had a historically very fickle relationship with music and sound art in a certain way. How so? There was this guy, um, Jim Fassett. Okay, he was a producer at CBS Radio. He was like the music director at CBS Radio. He hosted a program called Your Invitation to Music, which was the weekly radio broadcast of the New York Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is the 1940s. He gets really into birdsong. Um, And at the same time, he gets really into magnetic tape manipulation. So he gets these recordings from the Cornell Ornithology Lab and does some of the stuff that that the the ornithologists themselves were already doing, talking about slowing the tape way down, speeding the tape up, pitch shifting, just to try to get a deeper sense of the notes. Um, Really, the sounds were a kind of data. Um, 
Facet gets it in his mind that he's going to start, he's going to make a tape composition. Um, It's actually a kind of literal idea. He takes the notes and sort of manipulates them to match notes on on, on a piano tuning. I mean, he tries to tune, basically, bird notes in a really particular way. And then when he gets these splices of notes, he assembles them into a, a sort of piece that he called Symphony of the Birds. What's fascinating about the piece isn't that he made it. It's actually that he then got into a really kind of protracted argument with Cornell about the rights um, hmm. to, to do it. Um, and ultimately, you know, I've seen these letters in the archives where they say, you know, at the end of the day, we're not going to allow you to use this material. They didn't like the contract with the record company. That was part of it. But what they really said, I mean, they said this explicitly, what you're doing is not ornithology. Hmm. Um, and so there's this tension, I think, in the history, especially you know, post-1930, when ornithology becomes this really specialized field that's based on the study of recordings of bird songs and not the kind of observational practice that we know Messiaen was doing, mm-hmm. um, I think you start to see a little bit of boundary policing there um, where there was a harder line in ornithologists' minds between the science and the art of it than there was in almost anyone else. I mean, for very, very long swaths of human history, people have talked about the relationship between birdsong and music. Um, But there was a point where that crossover was literally possible. Um, People like Messiaen doing it in a representational way, people bringing in tape. Um, And that is when you see the ornithologists start to prickle a little bit uh, (laughs) at the idea that music can have a scientific function, I think. You actually wrote a paper entitled a bird-like act uh, in which you use the term performance whistling, uh, which I find kind of appropriate with Messian because, you know, when you think of imitating bird song, you think of whistling. And there's even videos of him talking about the quality of certain birds' songs, using his voice to try to imitate that. And then his wife would then translate that further onto the piano. Et voici le rossignol. Il éclate tout d'un coup, brusquement. Le, la seconde strophe... Ce sont des batteries sur deux sons très célèbres. Tico, 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 tico. Ensuite, dans le grave, un timbre mêlé clavecin et gong qui fait tchou, 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 tchou. C'est lui, il fait So I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about the the act of imitation of natural sounds and maybe how that fits into both recorded and live music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
the desire to record the natural world or capture it into recording technology, that desire existed long before it was technically possible. What you find in the turn of the century, or starting in the 1890s really, um, is a lot of animal imitation. And I was surprised and kind of delighted when I found a lot of this stuff. It started with whistling, which was used really in a kind of sound effect way into the 1930s and 40s, especially in like animated films. But imitation was actually a part of a vaudeville tradition in a lot of ways. There were people who were imitators who could imitate a variety of animals with their mouths. Um, that was sort of a complementary technique to people who did imitations of kind of voices, the way we think of comedic imitation today. Whistling developed out of that. So as these sort of vaudeville imitators faded from popularity in a certain way, a new kind of whistling emerged, which was this musical whistling and also whistling that specifically included bird-like trills and rolls and flourishes. And again, that sort of starts like we're all sort of having a laugh here. Like it, it's popular. It's a novelty, actually, is the way to think about it. It was novelty music. But then as that, as that sort of creeps up into the teens, the 19-teens and 20s, there is at least a handful of people, men and women, who really try to legitimize performance whistling as a naturalist practice, um, if not an explicitly ornithological one. So there are people who go on the Chautauqua lecture circuit who uh, you know, will show you a picture of a bird and then do an imitation of it. There are women who would, you know, define the bird, say it by name, and then whistle it. And they were doing this because it was before they had the ability to actually record and play back the bird song instead? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. I mean, this is the analog recording era. You know, no recordings of wild birds were possible. So this was one way that people thought, oh, we can sort of bring some of this natural world into the into your living room. I mean, that was literally how some of these things were marketed. You know, you live in a city, bring the natural world home with these collection of, of bird-like whistles. Hmm. Of course, the practice was complex. Um, besides coming out of this vaudeville tradition, it was also associated with coon song. There were racialized components of whistling. There were, there were critiques of female whistlers as being unladylike. There were, so there were these gendered associations with whistling. And one of the ways that whistlers overcame that stigma was to say, no, 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 no. You think whistling is like this lower class thing or a black thing or a gay thing or I mean, whatever. There are literally tons of stereotypes associated with it. Um, so the way that performance whistlers overcame that was to say, you know, what we're doing is science. This is natural observation. It has educational value. We can also make it aesthetic and beautiful. And often whistlers would do some quote unquote straight imitations. And so they said, hey, this is, you know, this is a real thing here. Take it seriously. And, and a lot of people did. There's at least one whistler who is accepted into the American Ornithologists Union um, hmm. and, and gets like a medal for his, for his skills. A guy named Charles Crawford Gorst. Cardinal or Redbird. 
Um, ornithologists didn't disagree. Many ornithologists themselves at this time also did imitation. Um, I have an example of, of taxidermists who did imitation. People whose work, whose professional work, was part of the intellectual project of natural history at this time were often animal imitators. Hmm. It was part of knowing their subject was the ability to mimic its, its own vocalizations, which, again, by the time Messian is doing this, um, to me, it almost harkens back to this earlier, um, you know, mimetic era of, of, of animal interpretation. So that way, I think it's kind of a cool acknowledgement of these earlier embodied practices, which suggest an intimacy of knowledge that is in some ways lost, perhaps, by the purely visual readout of spectrographic data mm. i think so, i would i think i would say that yeah. so in a way it used to be kind of um i don't know information of the people and for the people rather than information of scientists <laughs> well <laughs> it's that's not wrong i mean right i mean <laughs> whistling is some might argue one of the more democratic musical forms mm. um you don't even need an instrument you don't need any specialized training um there are yeah there are hilarious kind of associations about this um, that you might have heard, that you might have seen in the paper, but, you know, this idea that actually some people, like, quote, unquote, you know, more primitive at this time, like African Americans or children, sort of more naive or people who were believed in these racist, often racist formulations to be closer to nature in some way, were often believed to have, like, an uncanny ability to whistle, right? Like, hmm. oh, they're, they're, it was actually part of their, like, more primitive nature they had a deeper connection to like they, they were they were mere conduits for this like natural form of whistling could magically emanate from their lips hmm. um and so obviously we don't want to recreate that kind of native romanticism or something so just in the the instance of imitation these kind of problems that come up of genderizing certain things or mm -hmm. racializing mm -hmm. i'm wondering if Somehow that could apply also to the pastoral symphony of Beethoven. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's caught up in all of this, too, that we haven't mentioned yet is the inherently sort of imperialist or colonialist project of categorization itself, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the work of natural history at this moment is very much a cataloging process. And you've got this you know, Linnaean desire to get everything under the sun into a workable taxonomy. Um, and so that process is inherently fraught. Um, even in something as simple, perhaps, as saying this is the sound of a bird by a stream. But it's especially fraught, I think, in the institutional ways that this uh, these activities were captured and and promoted and promulgated. Um, the work of capturing the sounds of birds was not unlike the work that was being done in ethnographic circles at that time to capture the voices 
of languages, of peoples all over the country, Native Americans, of course, but also all, all over the world. The colonialist racist legacy, basically, of that is absolutely part of this. I mean, there are there is language that is so similar as to be striking between capturing the voices of quote unquote dying peoples and capturing the voices of quote unquote dying species, things that were the 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 imperialist nostalgia, the fear that this very that we're losing this very thing that we're destroying. Right. Right? That's always, I think, lurking under the surface here. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes it is foregrounded the straight up project of, you know, kind of going out into a foreign space to mingle with foreign bodies and to somehow capture and document their knowledge in some way, bring it back into an institutional context. You know, it sounds kind of silly to say that we're appropriating birdsong, but I don't really know of a better way to say it. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're alluding to as well. Yeah. For lack of a better word, I think it's a kind of appropriation to take this thing in the world that has its own culture and meaning that is independent of our the meaning that we associate with it. The work at Cornell and these early recordings are absolutely the starting point for things like proprietary sound effects libraries, for things like movie licensing sound effects. I mean, it creates a marketplace of environmental sounds. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a marketplace that they themselves benefited from. I mean, they Cornell University Press, sometimes called Comstock Publishing. I mean, they had a record label. They put this stuff out. And they sold it to Walt Disney. I mean, I have this great, I have this great letter that I've seen of, of, of Paul Kellogg, one of the ornithologists, sort of bragging to a friend, like, "Hey, I just did a recording of an alligator that I sold to Walt Disney, you know, <laughs> for five hundred bucks or something." There's this notion that you're doing like this sort of documentary work by just kind of placing a microphone, uh, often an expensive array of microphones in a sort of exotic or otherwise sonically interesting locale and then sharing them with people on social networks. Is that inherently environmentalist? I have doubts about that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I do think that there is sort of an, an absolutely there's an ethics of listening. Um, I think there can be an ethics of recording. I think there can be an ethics of music um, that is environmental. We still have an important ethical role to play um, in how we represent the natural world through sound or how we think about listening. Messian or someone like Aldo Leopold um, was sort of actually close to, to those things. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you specifically about um, the travel log because I know that you've done a little bit of research about this and I'm wondering if you think that maybe the catalog of birds could be grouped in that category of a travel log, or maybe even just explain what a travel log is in the arts or in recorded. Sound. Yeah, I mean, I came, I came to the travel log through my own. I mean, also the way I came into thinking about the relationship between sound and technology was through film studies. And what I've learned from looking through this Messian stuff is that this was very much a journey. Um, this was a travel that he took that moved from place to place. That had a um, a real relationship to the country and the countryside. It had a sort of, I mean, we can say it, he was a little bit of a tourist, but this was also his own land. Mm -hmm. And and he moved through it to tell to tell a narrative. And I think to me, 
Um, you know, if Messian failed in some ways as an ornithologist, he really succeeded as a narrative storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, and he succeeded as an imitator. Um, and I think that is what I hear in the piano notes more than anything else is a sort of a very individual journey, a reflective individual journey. It fits into this narrative of the, the travel film, the travel lecture, except he did it in sound. One of the larger movements in the set, I think there's a quote that he actually said that it's a photograph album of bygone days or something like that. Yeah, it points to a sort of an observational moment, right? Um, Maybe that connective tissue is something, is like I said, part of the work that we have to do. But the idea of photographs is also so interesting and rich, right? I mean, what you're trying to do is capture a scene. And you move from scene to scene. And sometimes that alone creates narrative. You can find um, examples of this in recordings of soundscapes that start to be made in the 1950s. You know, um, Mo Ash, who runs the Folkways record label, does a lot of science recordings. He calls them, and and he says, "What I imagine this to be is like a photo book for the ears." That is is very much an idea that was in the world. It's it ties in capture. It ties in observation. And I think it ties in this sort of travel. To close out the episode, I'd like to feature some of Messian's Le Merle Noir, which uses the flute to imitate the bird call and bird songs of a common blackbird. I included bits of this audio in previous episodes, but a video also exists on YouTube of Eva Uguchik and myself performing the work. I'd like to thank Craig Ely once again for his valuable insights on these expansive topics within Messian's musical output and legacy. Transcript and citations to this and every episode can be found on my website, www.kyledjohnson.com. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to a preview of Art Music Perspectives, a podcast produced by Dr. Kyle Johnson and available now from Apple Podcasts. To learn more about Johnson's other work and current projects, visit kyledjohnson.com. Johnson was speaking with Dr. Craig Ely, a freelance audio producer based in Madison, Wisconsin. You can follow him on Twitter at Craig Ely. That's E-L-E-Y. I'm Brian Hamilton, and you've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of Che, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. We'll be back in two weeks with Gavin Van Horn discussing his new book, The Way of the Coyote, Shared Journeys in the Urban Wilds. Get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Radio Public, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps others discover us. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeffects.net. <laughs>